to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. I don't know who left this up here. It is a cough drop, but that is there. I am very grateful for it, and I'm going to use it. Last Monday, last Monday, I came down with just a terrible cold. And I'll tell you what, as a, as a preacher, you want, if you're going to get, get a cold, you want it on Monday. So because I'm feeling a lot better by now, but my throat is just a little bit, uh, a little bit weak, so please um, understand that. But thank God for the strength that he gives us. Mark chapter 7, for some months we have focused in on this gospel of Mark. We have looked very closely uh, in the preceding six chapters, we've looked very closely at the life and the teaching, the ministry, the miracles of Jesus Christ. We've seen so much. We've seen Jesus in so many places doing so many powerful things. Uh, we've seen Jesus perform healings. We've seen him cast out uh, about three or four or five times demons out of people. We have seen him miraculously providing and miraculously directing. <laughs> Last week, if you were here, we looked at that text just before Mark chapter 7, where Jesus was walking on water. How cool is that? Somebody came up to me after preaching on that and said, well, I walk on water all the time. I walk on ice. I said, that's not water, that's ice. Anybody can do that. doesn't take a, a miracle to walk on ice. Depending on how thick it is, you don't have to be very smart to walk on ice, but, but to walk on water is a miracle. It's a miracle. And so we've seen Jesus working so many different miracles in so many different places. You've seen a lot of narrative where you can just imagine that story in your mind as we go through Mark. But more and more in Mark's gospel, from this point on, we will still see Jesus in certain places doing many really remarkable things. But more and more, we will also find Jesus saying a great deal. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you'll notice that there's a lot more red letters coming up than what we've seen previous to this. You will again, again and again see Jesus teaching and instructing and correcting like he's doing here in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, the first few words of verse 1 read this way. Now when the Pharisees <clears throat> gathered to him with some of the scribes. I want you to pause there for just a moment. Again, it reads this way. When the Pharisees gathered to him along with some of the scribes. Let me explain these people before we proceed. The Pharisees were a member of a religious sect that was quite prominent at this time in Jewish history. They were, they were known for their their very close adherence to the Torah. Now, the Torah would be our Old Testament, Jewish Holy Scripture. And the Pharisees were deeply committed to the Torah. Uh, they were very well respected in their communities. I know sometimes if you call somebody a Pharisee now, it would be derogatory. But back then, a Pharisee was a person who was very highly regarded in Jewish circles. But, it, but in addition to their commitment to the Torah, the Pharisees were also uh, holding very closely to various collections of writings. They would be what we would call commentaries. 
in other words, elaborations of the text, they were also very committed to those writings. So, so if 100 or 200 years before, somebody took a piece of the Torah and really wrote a bunch of things about that, a, a well-respected rabbi or teacher would do that. They not only committed themselves to the study of the Torah, but also to these commentaries. They studied scripture, but they, they studied even more the elaborations on Scripture. It, it, it would be like us taking Bible. Yes, we love the Bible, but, but I pay even more attention to this commentary. It would be like if you have a study Bible, you study more the footnotes than the text itself. It's kind of what they were into. Now, the scribes are also recorded here. This is all by way of explanation because you need to understand this to appreciate really what was happening. The scribes are also recorded here. They were experts and teachers of the Mosaic Law. They were, they were very precise when it came to the Torah. I mean, th th in fact, they would memorize, the scribes or the teachers of the law would memorize sizable portions of Scripture, committed to memory, and they would recite it down to the smallest word. They, they got it so precise. These were people that were deeply committed to Scripture. They also were very highly regarded by the Jewish people. So you have these, these two groups of people, it says here at the very beginning of verse 1. And it says both groups had come from Jerusalem. Both groups had come from Jerusalem. Now, if you're like me, you just kind of want to read on and get to the rest of it, but I want to stop there for a moment as well because that too is significant. It says they came from Jerusalem. That may not seem like much until you realize that they had walked nearly 100 miles to meet with Jesus and his disciples. Back then, of course, they didn't have transportation means like we do. Even back then, to have a donkey would have been a luxury. Most travel was done by way of walking, and from where we assume pretty clearly where Jesus is, it was roughly a 100-mile walk to get to Jesus. After meeting with Jesus, they obviously went back those same 100 miles. These people were determined. It meant here that they walked 200 miles to meet with Jesus and his disciples. <laughs> I know, that, that's commitment. Here's the thing. Unlike others who came to see Jesus, like the, the crowds of people that came out to receive miracles, the crowds of people that came out to hear him, unlike those people... These persons, the scribes and the Pharisees, came to question Jesus. They, they, they came to try and catch him in some violation of their understanding of the law. Verse 2 says this. They saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verses 3 and 4 explain why that was such a big deal. It says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, notice this, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, or when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, and copper vessels. 
It says there in verse 3 that they, they wanted them to wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now understand, the washing of hands and utensils was instructed by God in Scripture. You can, you can go back into the book of, of Leviticus, and you can find there where God directed his people prior to eating to wash their hands. Now, I really believe that that, that is God who, who understands microbiology long before mankind did, who understood the importance of cleanliness and sanitation long before mankind did. And so God instructed them, wash your hands before you eat. So if your kid's mouthing back to you and says, I don't want to wash my hands, tell them it's biblical, wash your hands. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. In the centuries that followed those instructions in Scripture, remember our Old Testament, their Torah, in the centuries that followed that, the way that they washed and the order in which they washed was added to generation after generation. So you had to do it in a certain order, this hand first, this hand second. You had to do it with certain things, and I mean, it was all very, very, very precise. God made the directive, wash your hands. But then mankind added to it, and it had to be done a certain way. So washing had its foundation in truth, but it it had become buried and burdened under the weight of tradition. Good start it becomes something that the form had taken precedence over the function. Hmm. Now, verse 5 says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus. Now, remember, they're, they're, they're wanting to catch him in something. They asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? This is their question. Verses 6 through 9 record Jesus' response, and I want you to notice as we read it how pointed his words were to them. Verses 6 and 7, Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That's a strong word. Well did Isaiah prophesy of of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, notice the word here, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I want you to notice that word because I'm going to refer back to it a little bit later on. Verse 8, Jesus continued. He said, you leave the commandment, it's powerful, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, he said essentially the same thing. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So picture this scene in your mind. Remember, as I mentioned, the Pharisees and the scribes were highly regarded by the people. I mean, people deferred to them. If if they're walking through a crowd, the crowd would part and defer to the scribes or the Pharisees. And now Jesus... Knowing their hearts, knowing their motive, calls them a hypocrite. It's a strong word. Because while their hands were clean, their hearts were corrupt. Let me say that again. Jesus 
knowing everything about them, knew that their hands were ceremonially clean, their hearts were corrupt. You know, there's a big difference between clean hands and a corrupt heart. The hands you can see, the heart not so easy. They were ceremonially clean on the outside, filthy and lost and cruel on the inside. Well, Jesus came down pretty hard. We see that here. He came down pretty hard because while they were so intent on their traditions and they were so intent on their history and they were so intent on parsing out, well, this is the way that the elders told us it was to be done, even though Scripture didn't. They were so intent on their traditions and their history. And what they thought was their perfectly wrapped little world, they failed to see the Savior who was right in front of them. I think that's actually one, it's not stated here, but I think that's one of the greatest tragedies that, that really happened on this event. I mean, here, here they are, they're all bent out of shape because somebody didn't wash their hands in just a certain order. Or maybe they didn't wash their hands properly from a, the, the correct basin. And they're so concerned about that that they fail to see that this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, right in front of them. That's a great tragedy. They're so close, but they're so far. It says there in verse 9, they rejected God's commands in order to establish their traditions. They rejected God's commands in order to fulfill their own traditions. On the screen, you're about to see two words. First word is the word doctrine. Doctrine. Now, um, I, I have to tell you that I, I hesitated even using that word because that word, doctrine, to many people is like hitting a huge off switch. So oh, I don't want to talk about doctrine. In fact, I've heard people say, don't talk to me about your doctrines. I've also heard people, Christians, say, I'm really not big into doctrine. I always question that. In fact, I will very carefully and kindly uh, 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 speak to that when I hear that, but I've heard people say that. I'm not really into doctrine. But doctrine is simply the commands of God. Doctrine is simply God's written word, his truths to us. It's a word, in fact, that Jesus frequently used. A few verses earlier, Jesus, in fact, quoted Old Testament scripture, and he, and he says that you've avoided these doctrines. Doctrines, again, are teachings from scripture. Doctrine is very important. If you don't believe that doctrine is important, then let me show you sometimes the results of bad doctrine. We see it all around. There's a lot of so-called churches that have abandoned doctrine for tradition. I'll come back to that a little bit more. But doctrines are teaching from Scripture. They are biblical truths. They are biblical absolutes. They are commands of God that simply do not change. You understand, please, that there are doctrines in the Word of God that are for every person at every time in any place. Biblical doctrines, absolute truths, 
true at any point in history, apply to every culture, true for every language, truths for every person, and they are truths regardless of public opinion. I want to give you just a couple of them this morning. There are a number of the key doctrines of Scripture that we could go into, but I want to be sensitive to time. Here's one. The Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is inspired. You know, that's a doctrine. That's a doctrine of the Word. It's written in the Word, but it's a doctrine of the Word. That this book, this book that I hold in my hand, the book that you hold in your hand, is inspired by God. It's not just a book. It is the book. It is a book unlike any other because this is a book that God spoke to a number of people over a period of many years and, 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 and directed them, inspired them to put pen to paper, distributed it around, and it is what we have, the Word of God today. It's true. It's His revealed plan for mankind. The Bible is without error. The Bible is powerful, and it is essential for what we believe and how we live. I've been reading this book for a lot of years. I've read through it many times. I can't wait to, to, to finish reading through it again, and when I get done reading through it, I'm going to start over back in Genesis. I love God's Word, but it is absolute truth. It is His directions for my life, His directions for your life. It is inspired by God. That's a doctrine of the Bible. Here's another powerful doctrine. There is but one true God. He is the creator of heaven and earth. There are no other gods before him or after him. There is but one true God. He is the redeemer of mankind. Here's another doctrine. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He never sinned. He worked miracles. He became the living sacrifice and dying sacrifice for our sins on a cross. And glory to God, he rose from the dead. That is good doctrine. I could share a lot more of them, but I don't have time. But I want to give you <coughs> just one more example of an essential doctrine that, 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 that we not only believe, but we proclaim. And that is this. Every person is spiritually lost and can be saved only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's a doctrine. That's a truth. That's a truth that applies to any person at any point in history in any place in this world. It's a simple, basic, essential, important doctrine. And it simply tells us, again, every person is spiritually lost and can be saved only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That means, do you want eternal life? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want all of the spiritually destructive things in your life removed? It can happen only through the person of Jesus Christ. Just a few days ago, <coughs> I think it was Friday, I noticed something in the news. I read how a, uh, a recent governmental appointee was strongly attacked and criticized because he had stated that eternal life, eternal life can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. This government employee, or appointee rather, <coughs> had stated that eternal life could only be found in Jesus Christ and that all persons outside of Christ will stand condemned. <coughs> He's taken a lot of heat for that. He's taken, just throw it up here, honey, thank you. He's, he's taken a lot of heat for that, 
And I say, God bless him. Because what he's simply stating is a central truth that Christians have been declaring for 2,000 years, and that is you can only be saved through Jesus Christ, and outside of him you are eternally lost. It's not popular, but it's true. Doctrine. Doctrine. It's not a bad thing. So when somebody says, don't tell me your doctrines, well, well, then just pull it back a little bit, but then just start using words like, well, let me talk to you then about some truths. But that's really what it is. It's, it's a good, solid doctrines of the Word of God. They're not bad things, they're good things. In fact, we even sang, did you know we sang doctrine this morning? We sang this, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. That's doctrine. It's truth. There's another word that I want you to see on the screen. It's the word tradition. You see that word? Now traditions, be very clear on something. Traditions are not always bad things. They often have their beginning in good doctrine. But much like those ceremonially cleansing laws in Mark chapter 7, a practice of them without understanding the why can cause us to lose sight of that which is eternal. If all we do is go through the motions, if all we do is, under, is, is practice the traditions without understanding the why, they will never transform anyone. Let me give an example of this. Well, actually, let me, let me give you, a, let me give you a, an example before that example. When I was a boy, um, and it may have actually even been in my father's home, when he was a boy, after their family came to Christ, but when I was a boy, my parents had a great tradition. Every morning, we would... Uh, do the chores, get cleaned up. Mom would make breakfast, we would eat breakfast, and then immediately following breakfast, we would read a chapter of the Bible. And, um, and then we would pray. We would get down, we would kneel down at our chairs, and we'd pray for about four or five minutes. And then we'd sit up again, and my dad or mom would lead us in prayer. And we'd close, and then we'd go, go to school, go to work, whatever. It's a great tradition. In fact, I would have to say that one of the reasons why I'm serving Jesus today was because what we call we called it family altar. I've encouraged others to do it. It's a great tradition. But 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 think about this for a moment. If if we would have gone through that and no one ever told us why we do this, or if we would have done that and then lived uh, served Jesus quote served Jesus for about five or ten minutes uh, every morning and then lived like the devil the rest of the day then then I wouldn't understand the why and the tradition though important could have actually become destructive it would also be very dangerous for me to say if you're going to be a good Christian if you're going to be a good family then you must get up every morning about ten minutes early and do this no, I'm not saying that it's not important. I'm simply saying that when we try to make our traditions into doctrine, we get into dangerous territory. 
I'm not saying that traditions are always bad. We all have them. But we better understand the why and we better be careful that we distinguish between doctrine <coughs> and tradition. Let me give you another example. Not such a good one. Two nights ago, <coughs> two nights ago, we had a bunch of people in our home. We had a great time. We just had a wonderful, we were going to be in a park, but then it got too windy and we all came to our house and, uh, and uh, just had a wonderful time together. And for a while, I spoke with one of the, one of the men who uh, was there, and he shared with me how he came to Christ. I, I often, whenever I, you know, getting to know someone, I'll, I'll often say, so tell me how you came to Christ. And, uh, and he shared with me how he came to Christ. It was, it was powerful. He told me how he had grown up in a church that repeated its doctrines <coughs> in every service. He told me how he, in this church, it, 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 it was, it was, tradition was very important, but he also stated that he elevated its tradition, that this church elevated its traditions above the level of doctrine, that the traditions were more important. He said the things it taught, the church taught, owed much more to tradition than it did, did to the word of God. Yet, yet he also added, he said, yet Whenever I went there, it just seemed empty of God's presence. I asked him if I could share the story without going into detail. He said, absolutely. Don't mention my name, but he said, absolutely, share it. He went to a church that had much tradition, but no presence of God. He knew this church's practices. He'd heard its liturgy countless times, but he was never told. He was never told in all the years that he was there. He was never told that he could know Jesus Christ himself. He never heard, not even once, never heard once how he could surrender his life to Jesus Christ and be transformed by him. Finally, someone told him. Finally, someone outside at a, at a job told him about Jesus Christ and he came into a living understanding of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he began to be transformed those eternal truths, those biblical doctrines then became real to him. The things that he'd heard, one statement after another suddenly became alive because he understood not only the why, but the who, the person of Jesus Christ. And yet when I heard that, my heart broke because I thought, here's another example, this message largely done. I, I, I thought to myself, here's another example of where mankind has this propensity to take their traditions, and move them above their doctrines. Tear down the doctrines, sometimes because of their traditions. The things that happened in Mark chapter 7 are still happening today. Man's traditions superseding God's commands. Well, I'd like to think it can't happen to us. I'd like to say, well, that just happens with some denominations or some churches. We need to be very careful as well. I'd like to say it can happen to us, but it can. In recent years, because of an increased leadership role, I have been called to be involved in some of the conflicts within other, within other churches. This has been both exhilarating and frustrating to sit with other congregations and other pastors, leaders in churches, and to see the conflict and hopefully do something 
to make a difference in the conflict. And too many times, I have seen conflict that came when tradition superseded doctrine. When instead of doctrine being superior, traditions inferior, it was flipped. I've seen people become angry because a newer Bible translation was used. I've seen people become very upset, angry, because an old song was no longer sung. I remember one man adamantly telling me that the only way to come to Christ is through an altar call made by a pastor at the close of a service. He was very firm on that. He said, that's the only way you can come to Christ. I said, where is that in the Bible? He says, well, that's what happened to me. He said, that's how he came to Christ. Years before, years before, God had done a tremendous work at the close of a service when (coughs) invitation was given and he stepped forward. (coughs) He surrendered his life to Christ. But in those moments or in those days or years that followed that, in his mind he began to think that's the only way because it's the way it happened to me. And what did he do? He took the tradition of man and he moved it above the doctrine of God. He didn't know that he had made his tradition a virtual doctrine. Don't get me wrong. Altar calls are important, and I give them. But this book, the Word of God, this book tells me how how many people came to Christ in homes and in streets and in parks and in businesses. I've seen how in this Word how many people bring many different kinds of people. I've got news for you, and I had news for that gentleman. I said... If, if, if this world coming to Christ is dependent upon one person giving one invitation over a few minutes and one week, then this world will never be one. But the doctrine says we are to go into all the world, to all people's groups, every place we can, in the business place, in the marketplace, in the school place, wherever we are, and we, followers of Jesus Christ, not just preachers of the gospel, are to take the word out and transform lives. That's doctrine. (coughs) And yet sometimes, sometimes our traditions supersede our doctrines. How many congregations, how many congregations have gone through agonizing, agonizing times because someone elevated a tradition to the level of a doctrine? How many churches, how many congregations have expended vast amounts of energy over some petty thing within their walls while giving no energy or effort or even thought to the thousands of people around them who are on their way to hell? I know of a church, some years ago, I know of a church that split, that split over the dissension (coughs) over the color of the songbooks. And they wondered why not only did the church die, but so did the split off of it. And they should have. Because it's petty. It's not worth scrapping over. Because there's a greater importance. And that is people are dying and going to hell. We only have so much energy, I want to expend it there. Can I get an amen? Amen. (coughs) Getting real quiet all of a sudden. 
making me nervous. I don't have a pulpit that's bulletproof anymore. I mean, things can go through here. How many people failed to come to Christ because they saw Christians who were proper on the outside, who are clean on the outside, who have it appearance-wise put together on the outside, but they're bitter and they're corrupt on the inside. How many people who want to know Christ, who are close to coming to Christ, but they see just below the surface and they go, I don't want anything to do with it. See, hypocrisy still exists. But God protect me from it. God protect, I don't, I don't want to, listen, I, the cleansing thing, it's, it's, all, it's all good. And <coughs> excuse me. There's nothing wrong with, with but, but if, if, if it's all external and not internal, then I've lost something desperate. God, protect me from it. God, protect you from it. Lord, help us to live authentic Christian lives. Be authentic Christians who look to our Lord and his word more than we do to our traditions. <coughs> I've heard comments like, I don't think that's even a Christian church because they don't have this. Well, I get it. Maybe they don't do it the way that I do it. But I'll tell you what, if, if they're, they're, we're together on the core doctrines of the church and they believe that Jesus Christ died for them and that through him alone, glory to God, we're together. I want to finish with the example of a person. Get back up again. Let me give you one more example of what not to do before I give you an example of what to do. Some, a couple of years ago, I was having dinner with somebody. One of the persons in the, in the group was not a part of our congregation. They related a story how when they were a kid, they were a part of a church, and the, uh, the uh, like a lot of churches, people kind of sit in their own places, you know. Kind of like you, you like to kind of sit in your own place, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that much. I don't have much of a problem with it. I would just think you'd get tired of shaking the same hands, but that's, you know, that's just beside the point. But um, We know when you're not here, because <laughs> he, he is. Um, anyway, uh, didn't mean to say that, and I'm probably going to regret it later on. And this old boy, he, he always sat in this one spot. I mean, it was his spot. And, and a couple of the teenage boys <coughs> who were in the church thought, well, we're going to get him today. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna really shake him up. And so, they, the, the three or four teenage boys, they came in, and they, they got there early, and they sat right in that guy's pew. About the same time as he usually came in, the old boy comes in, and he looks down, and he sees them, and he, and he gets angry, and he says, "All right, then you have your way," and he stormed out, and he never went back to church again. The person who's telling me this story. Then made this comment. She said this. She said, shame on those boys. You know what I thought? Shame on that old man. Because you know what he did? He took something as petty as where you sit, more important than the truth of God's word, more important than the mission of the church. That's hypocrisy. That's latter-day Phariseeism. 
You know what he could have done? Here's what I got thinking about afterwards. Here's what the old boy should have done. He should, he, man, did he miss an opportunity. He should have, he should have come up, seen those boys, and he says, boys, <coughs> I see you're sitting in my spot. I've been sitting there for a lot of years. He says, but I don't, he says, this is what he should have said. He says, but I don't care. I'm just glad that young men are here. Boys, slide on over. I'm going to sit next to you, and I'm going to take you out afterwards. Think of what that would have done. But instead, doing what he did, he communicated this to every one of those boys. If there's something you don't like, then you just leave. If there's something that just unsettles your perfect little world, then you just turn your back and you go away. He missed his opportunity. He could have transformed some lives. God, help us. Now, that's one story, but God help me from ever being in any way, big or small, a latter-day Pharisee. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want you to be that guy or that gal. I don't want you to be that person. Let me give you a good example. There's a man. We don't know the names of the persons who showed up there in Mark chapter 7 who walked 100 miles to get bent out of shape about how somebody ate and then walked a hundred miles back home and said, he's a bad guy, let's organize to kill him. And he eventually had a part in that. We don't know their names. We don't know much about them. We do, however, know the name of a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus, though we don't know a great deal about him, we do know from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, that he came to Jesus, it says, in the night. We assume he came to him because he didn't want his Pharisee brothers to find out that he was going to meet with Jesus. But he went to see Jesus, not to confront him, not to catch him in some violation of the Mosaic law or perceived violation. He went to him because he was genuinely, spiritually hungry. And it was to Nicodemus the first time it was ever spoken. It was spoken to a Pharisee. Jesus said to Nicodemus. In fact, you know what he said. He said, you must be born again. <coughs> it was to Nicodemus. He said, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. He said that to a Pharisee. We've been quoting it ever since then. Today, a person who has a living relationship with Jesus Christ, who knows him personally, we say that person has been born again. It's not a term from the 70s or the 80s. It's a term from the first century Jesus speaking to a Pharisee. There's another reason why I mentioned Nicodemus. Time goes by, and later on in the Gospel of John, it says when Jesus died on the cross, and he gave up his spirit, and he died. On that day, two men, their names are given, who took his body off the cross and prepared it for burial. Their names were Joseph of Arimathea 
and Nicodemus. A former, maybe even still at that time, a present Pharisee. But he was a Pharisee of a different kind. God had done a, begun to do a great work within him. I believe someday we're going to see Nicodemus in heaven. I'm very confident of that. Nicodemus would have been perhaps even one of those in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. We don't know that for sure. But he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He may not have been one of those who walked 200 miles, but he was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus. He cared for Jesus. And I point him out because glory to God, there, there is hope for Pharisees. And so this morning, as we close, different kind of a message. Again, there's not a, not a big story here of what Jesus did as much as what Jesus said. I want, I want to pray with you. For I have been praying this leading up to this time. This is a very important message. Holy Spirit, this is what I've been praying. Holy Spirit, search hearts and shine your light to see if there be any Pharisee way in me. God, search my heart. I don't want to be a guy who's just got it together on the outside and corrupt and lost on the inside. I want to be a guy that says, you know what, may not be very well put together on the outside, but boy, he sure loves Jesus. And I want the same to be said of you. I want to pray that with you this morning. There is hope for Pharisees. I've been one at various times in my life. I heard somebody say once, within every, within every follower of Jesus, there's a Pharisee just itching to get out. But, oh God, deliver me from, deliver me from any kind of hypocrisy. I'd like to pray with you. Uh, and, if, and if that's you right where you are in these moments, Ed, I'd like you just to go to a place of prayer and I want you to go to a place of repentance. And if the Holy Spirit in any way, great or small, has spoken to you and, and said, said, all right, you know, big boy, big girl, this is what it is. Here it is. <laughs> and, 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 and to shine the light, then would you, would you repent of that? Right where you are. Just confess it. Jesus, who died on that cross to forgive our sins, will can and will forgive you. He'll do it right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Join me as, as I pray and, 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 and pray this with me. Lord Jesus, come. Now, I, I pray that you come into my heart. And, and, and Lord, maybe this is the first time I've ever prayed this. Lord, come into my heart and forgive my sins. I surrender my life to you. And Jesus, I may be praying that for the first time or I may prayed it a long time ago, but I pray this right now. Deliver me from being a hypocrite. You called him out. You called those guys out. You called them hypocrites. That's pretty strong language, Lord. You, you, were, very, you were very focused on that. You, you were very intentional. You never said one word in all of the words that are recorded. You never said one word that was out of line that was unintentional or by accident. Every word was intentional. Lord, maybe you're calling me out a little bit. And if so, Lord, I repent of it. I repent of, if there's an inner Pharisee, Lord, I just repent and pray that you deliver me from that. I pray, Jesus, that the doctrines of your word would be the most important truths that I know. But I would never help me, Lord, not to elevate my 
preferences, my traditions, my opinions, my likes or my dislikes, Lord, may I never elevate those to the point of doctrine or even beyond it. I pray that your living word would transform my life. My tradition, if it's empty, it's purposeless, will not change one person. My opinion on something will not change one person. But Lord, your word and your eternal truths have transformed millions. So would you change me? Guard me? Keep me? Deliver me? Someday, Lord, when I get to heaven and I see another former Pharisee named Nicodemus, may we fellowship together talking about the great things that God has done in us. So I pray that for my brothers and my sisters here today. Your word above all else. Your truths above all else. Our traditions secondary, maybe tertiary, maybe way down the list. But oh God, may your truth be moved forward in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me please? Thank you for joining us this morning. Again, as always, these altars are open. Maybe the Lord wants to just do a little bit more work on you, and that's more important than anything else in these next few moments. So these altars are going to be open. There will be some music playing, and, uh, and you're certainly welcome to that. But thank you for joining us today. May the Word of God not only be left here like something just discarded in the pew, but carried with you. May the Holy Spirit speak to you in the coming days. And I believe that even having preached this now, the Holy Spirit will bring some of these back and things back to our minds. And when we act upon them, we go, that's tradition more than doctrine. So that's my prayer for you this morning. Lord Jesus, now as we go, your blessing upon my brothers and my sisters. May they be all that you want them to be, not what we expect of each other, but what you want us to be. Protect them, defend them, provide for them, work miracles, Lord, work miracles of nature in the days ahead work miracles of provision, miracles of encouragement, miracles of healing. We pray these things in, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord.